What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Hello and welcome to this special Halloween episode of Worlds Awaiting. This can be such an exciting time of year to explore some of the spookier, ghoulish worlds and have some fun while doing it. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of monsters, the macabre, and the paranormal. First, we'll be talking with Matt Kirby about one of his newest books. Then we'll hear from Professor Jamie Horrocks about some of the twisted tales from the Victorian era. Then we'll talk with Jessica Day George about how werewolves, vampires, and Romania play a part in her book, Silver in the Blood. Before we leave you, we'll sit down around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around Utah about children, reading, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have a spooky story time with Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, and we'll hear some author tips from author David John Butler. But before all that, let's take a look into my world. Rachel's When I was a girl, my mother taught first grade. In our house, the school year started with sunflowers, and as fall progressed, we moved into music. We began with fall songs like Whirly Twirly, Whirly Twirly in the air, Whirly Twirly, Whirly Twirly everywhere, that captured the falling leaves. As Halloween approached, we sang the song that began, Little Jack-O-Lantern is very round and fat, and ended with, On Spooky Halloween Night. For me, these songs capture the playful joy and imaginative potential of the season. With the changes in the landscape all around us, and the time to enact some of our dreams by being in a costume, there was something fundamentally fun about this time of year. Today I find the same kind of playful fun in some great stories about one of my favorite Halloween character types, monsters. Two of my favorites come from one of my very favorite authors, Ed Emberley. Emberley's illustrations are bold and colorful, so his monsters are anything but scary. But even though they don't look scary, we know that sometimes they still can be a little bit intimidating. Emberley's book, Go Away, Big Green Monster, helps us face our monsters as turning the pages finally makes the monster disappear. Emberley also makes another monster go away in There Was an Old Monster. A fun take on the classic rhyme, in the end, this monster tries to swallow a lion with not much success. While Emberley shows us how to take care of monsters, Jory John and Bob Shea show us that monsters have feelings too. In their book, Don't Call Me a Monster, we find that Floyd Peterson may have purple fur and pointy teeth, but he is so much more than a monster, and he would like to be treated with a little respect. This fun monster story deals with some important lessons about how we should interact with other people who may be different from us. This commentary on great monster books would not be complete without a shout-out to the classic The Monster at the End of the Book by John Stone. This classic from the Sesame Street Workshop still holds up today as a fun, engaging story, and it's 
also been developed into a fun interactive app that has some great playful interactives that really add to the story. So if these recommendations from Rachel's World or other songs, stories, or even apps, I hope you'll find a lot of playful things to share with your families so that you too can have lots of fun on Halloween. Rachel's World Every book and every author has a different take on history, fantasy, and reality. Here at Worlds Awaiting, we love to give you a glimpse at new books that you can add to your reading list. Today, we're in studio with author Matt Kirby to talk about one of his newest books. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. We always love to have you, especially to talk about your books. And today, let's start by talking about your book, A Taste for Monsters. So to begin, tell our audience a little bit about what is this book? Maybe give us the plot synopsis. You know, as with as with I find with a lot of my books, it can be difficult to sort of it sum can. Them That's up. why I asked you to tell yeah, us what it was about yeah, okay. instead of me. <laughs> All right, because <laughs> well, it's so you. complex. Yeah, because yeah. it would take me like thirty <laughs> minutes to tell it what it's about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. A Taste for Monsters is about a woman named Evelyn in Victorian London who has had a rough life, like a lot of women in Victorian London had, and she uh, seeks refuge in the London hospital, hoping to get a job there and escape the streets of Whitechapel, uh, which was not a great place to live. And in the course of that, she ends up becoming a personal uh, maid or attendant to one of the hotel or hospital's most prominent patients, Joseph Merrick, the elephant man, who in the course of the novel is being haunted by the ghosts of Jack the Ripper's victims who are being murdered throughout the course of the narrative. So the ghosts are sort of haunting as it happens. And Evelyn has to leave that safe refuge of the hospital and go out to try and help these spirits find some rest in order to save her new friend, Joseph Merrick. So that's, I guess that's... That's perfect. No, that's perfect. All right. I I really one of the things I love about this novel is there's really kind of three threads that I see. There's there's the issues with Evelyn and and her life and then with um Joseph Merrick and then also kind of Jack the River. And I love that you've taken all three of these kind of disparate threads that you may not see as connecting and put them together in one amazing novel that connects oh. all of these issues into one place. So where did this inspiration come from? Why why did you take these three pieces and put them together? Well, it began several years ago. Let's see. It probably would have been 2000. Yeah, it would have been 2009. I was just sort of interested in the elephant man, Joseph Merrick, and I was reading a play. But at that same time, I was watching the History Channel and There was a documentary on Jack the Ripper, and I realized that, wait a minute, there's overlap there. The London Hospital is in Whitechapel, and where the Ripper murders took place, and it was at the same time. Jack the Ripper, you know, it was a fairly, it was in 1888, and it was a fairly, you know, it was a period of a few months where these murders were taking place. And during that period of time, Joseph Merrick was living in the London hospital. In fact, one of the victims was found just a couple of streets away from the hospital. And I sort of latched on to that idea that this, it's not a very large area, Whitechapel. It's a neighborhood. And this one area of London as a 
kind of birthing ground for different sorts of monsters, two very different kinds of monsters. One type of monster that obviously was able to pass in society for something other than what the killer was, and another type of monster who appeared to be what we would think of a monster, but underneath was anything but, you know, was a very kind and gentle soul. So this idea of different kinds of monsters is really what I latched onto in this one area at this one particular time. And I wanted to find a way into that. And as I sat with that idea and sort of did some more reading about that time period, I found out about this condition, Fossy Jaw which was an affliction brought about from work with white phosphorus or yellow phosphorus. So back when they had matches that could strike anywhere, you know, like the, yeah. the, the stereotypical sort of strike on your boot kind of match, that was because they were using a type of phosphorus that was actually toxic. And so the people who worked in these match factories in Victorian London, they were typically women at that time. They were forced to eat their lunch and like basically live, eat, and breathe this toxic substance which built up in their bones and could eventually, you know, result in debilitating disfigurement. Because of the way the, I mean, we're kind of getting into detail here, but because of the way your bone heals, it turns over in your jaw, because your jaw has so much stress on it, the bone, the cells turn over quit more quickly. So the jaw would be the first place that the poisoning would manifest and it would result in having to remove part of or the whole jaw. That's a very different type of monster and also a monstrous system that produced it. So that's how I found Evelyn, who's the main character who is disfigured and goes to the London hospital to kind of get away from society to escape and that's where she meets the elephant man and that's and that's when it became a ghost story which is a different type of monster so again it was just sort of i would say that on one hand that theme of what is a monster what makes a monster that was sort certainly the back of my mind but the more research i did the theme that actually ties those threads together is the marginalized of society the disfigured the women at the time of victorian london in particular that was really what i latched onto was kind of exploring that marginalization in the society that enables it and all of those questions. This idea of the evocative nature of that time period and the evocative nature of, of these monsters and, and how they were treated and how they were constructed as part of this society was one of the things that really struck me about this book. I mean, it really, it really transported me back in time oh. in a really very fundamentally well, that's exciting kind of way. To say thank you. Well, you're welcome because that doesn't always happen with me with historical fiction. I, it doesn't always feel like I'm transported. Sometimes it feels like I'm just, you know, observing. But this case, I was really transported into that time period. So what did you do as research or as background? You, you've obviously described some of the things that you were looking at at the time. But how did you go about making sure that it would be that kind of evocative, really deep, immersive experience of this of this one little area of London in this time period? A lot of it was research. And fortunately, when it comes to Jack the Ripper, there is an abundance of it because this was sort of one of the first... I mean, there were probably serial killers prior to this, but because of the nature of mass media at the time... 
People in America were reading about Jack the Ripper in the newspapers. It's an incredibly well-chronicled event. And there's actually several websites that are, you know, maintained by passionate Ripperologists. So I didn't really have to do a lot of legwork to do the research. It's all in one place. And then I read a lot of other books about, you know, Victorian London. And then I had like three different dictionaries of Victorian slang that I was drawing from. And that allowed me in some ways to get into that, to open a window on that world in that time. As we close up our conversation today, Matt, tell us a little bit about what you would hope that readers might take from this book. Is there is there something in particular that you feel like would would be what you would hope that that a reader would find in this book or something that you would expect a reader to find? That's always a, a difficult question because I know that the readers bring their own experience and their own expectations to the table and I can't possibly anticipate what those will be. I can only speak to what I was interested in as I was writing it and what I took away from the process of writing it. If a reader takes that or not, like they may not find that at all when they come to the book. But the thing that really appealed to me as I got into the research for the book, I found that the victims of Jack the Ripper, their stories were seldom told. They were they were treated as their occupation when they died. They were sex workers. And that seems to be the end of the story. And particularly, there's there's sort of this notion in the contemporary sources, it was a very common thread as I was reading the newspapers at the time, that they brought them some themselves. I mean, one particular editorial that I read, or it may have been a letter to the editor in a newspaper, I can't remember, but basically came out and said that a, a violent disease often requires a violent cure. And there were other editorials and articles in newspapers that were reassuring the quote-unquote respectable members of society that only the most depraved would put themselves in, a, in this position. So the general public need not fear. And I was really bothered by that because victim blaming is still a problem when it comes to our society, when you have people who have been victimized and assaulted you know, the question of what were you wearing, the question of was alcohol involved, like those are all on the same spectrum. Like we still engage in this sort of victim blaming. And so as I researched, my focus shifted to the victims and less on the killer. And most of the documentaries you watch about Jack the Ripper, he's the focus or she. But the killer, we don't even know who he we is, don't know. right? We don't. Yeah, it's still yeah. unresolved. But most of the focus is on the murderer and not on the victims. And they are never really given a voice. They're treated as meat. And I wanted to do something different with this narrative that we all think we know. And that was more difficult than it sounds because for some of his victims, there's very little that's known. So I had to take what we do know and extrapolate a life from that. Because the other thing is, is most of his victims, they were, they were older. Like they were in their 30s and 40s. Some of them had kids. Some of them had been married. They had lives that brought them to this point where they met with this killer in the street. And that's what I wanted to – I wanted to tell their stories and make sure that it, their story wasn't defined by how they met their end. I don't know if readers will come away with that when they read the book, but that was definitely on my mind as I was writing it. I wanted to – 
find out who those women were and give them a different narrative. And I will say I did come away with that because I was very intrigued that you did focus on the victims and that's who the ghosts were and who the people that were trying to get somebody to speak for them and that sense of the marginalized people and finding someone who will speak for the marginalized to me, it was one of the most powerful themes in that book. I'm, I'm glad you so came least, away with at that. Least one, yeah. At least one reader Thank connected you. with what you <laughs> were trying you. to do. I appreciate that. And, and I really hope that there are other readers that will read this book and connect in that way, because it, it is a masterful tale of a very interesting historical period with marvelous themes that are very contemporary to our time. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Matt. Matt Kirby is an author who isn't afraid to take on multiple genres. Now let's take a moment to imagine. Close your eyes and picture a dark and stormy night. It's raining, lightning strikes, and you're standing in the parlor of a manor talking with friends. Someone suggests a competition to see who can write the best horror story. This is exactly what happened to Mary Shelley on her path to discovering Frankenstein's monster. So now it's story time with Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out. When, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was a lustrous, black and flowing. His teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes, that seemed almost of the same colour as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature, I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardour that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room, continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. At length, latitude succeeded to the tumult I had before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavouring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. But it was in vain. I slept indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. The history of literacy can take us on some dark and twisting roads. We're in studio today with Jamie Horrocks, an English professor here at BYU, who is an expert on the Victorian era of literature. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, thank you. We are going to chat about something that I don't know if a lot of people know about, and that is a wonderful kind of format of children's literature in the Victorian era called Penny Dreadfuls. So to start out, tell us, what are they? 
Um, well, there's a new series on Netflix called Penny Dreadful. And so some of your, your re- listeners might be familiar with that. But A Penny Dreadful was a piece of periodical publication. So this is a very cheap – it would look like a pamphlet to us today, usually about eight pages long, badly printed, usually with some bad illustrations on there. And they were published and sold for a penny. So even the poorest people in London in the 19th century could go to any bookseller, any kind of kiosk on the corner, and find just tons and tons of this print material that's meant to be consumed quickly and then uh, thrown away or traded away. So it's, it's one of those difficult things to retrieve, actually in an archival sense, because people didn't keep this stuff. You didn't bind it nicely. Because these weren't really nice stories. They were a little bit naughty. And, of course, kids have always loved (laughs) literature that pushes the boundaries of the appropriate a little bit, right? But because of that, because of their content and sort of the the lesser quality of the literature in them, not a lot of them have been saved as opposed to some of the classic children's books like the Alice books or something like that. So it's a particularly interesting avenue of research. So we get the penny from they were a penny the and the penny. dreadful from the content of the story. They were dreadful. They were totally dreadful. So tell us what was so dreadful about them. You name it, they had it. Uh, murder, of course, was the most popular. And these were very bloody murders. Now, you know, we think about today, there's lots of conversations about, you know, how much violence is too much for a children's or an adolescent's piece of literature. What can you say? What can you? OK, well, let me tell you, in the 19th century, in the penny dreadfuls, there was no qualms. These uh, were people who were hacked to death with axes. There was blood spurting in all directions. There were attacks. There were sexual assaults that aren't explicitly stated as such, but it's it's very clear and would have been very clear to readers. There's armed robberies. There's lots and lots of highwaymen um, who are sort of hijacking the coaches as they're going about the about the streets. Theft, arson. Anything bad that you can think of was featured like front and center in these Penny Dreadfuls. Well, and it wasn't just the text that did it, right? The illustrations are some of the most gory illustrations. I mean, entrails hanging out yes. and heads burning blood and all of these fabulous kinds of kinds of things. I mean, they didn't hesitate at all to no. portray that. Well, and remember, too, that the Penny Dreadfuls emerged about sort of the 1830s and 40s. They became very popular. And it's right at this time when there's a transition in literacy. So before this time, most working class folks were illiterate. There's no compulsory school or education. There's no free public schools. So if you learned to read, you were probably middle class. And that meant that your parents were pretty careful about what they were allowing you to read, right? But in the 19th century, as literacy rates increased for the first time, and you get very poor working class people reading, these are people – remember, even very young children worked in the 19th century – Long factory shifts. So if a child, you know, is working a 10-hour day and they go home, they don't read very well, um, but they want to pick up something relaxing or enjoyable, why not pick up this pamphlet that has a picture of someone's head being chopped off? And that would sort of encourage you to, to sound your way through the words that might be unfamiliar or hard to read. So the pictures are absolutely essential for this kind of semi-literate and newly literate um, class of readers in the 19th century. 
And I think that's an important thing we need to remember about this form of literature particularly is that I think it actually made the semi-literate literate. And it took that step forward. And if we hadn't have had this type of literature so readily available, economically available, and then entertainmently connected, right, that we may not have seen the rise in the literacy rate. So I don't know if you can say that we can... 100% connect the two. But I really think, particularly for children, that that type of literature is what created uh, the more literate societies that we start seeing, you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries, right? That that's where it was foundationalized. Well, and one of the things you can look at is the longevity of some of these penny dreadfuls, right? So one of the the most popular ones was a series called The Boy Detective. Starts in the 1860s. There are 72 different parts to this story. And I think, you know, what that's telling you is that it would pick up readers early on and then it would keep those readers reading over a series of many years. Another very popular penny dreadful, perhaps the most popular, is called The Mysteries of London. And um, it has altogether 4.5 million words. Um, so if you could start a reader reading and capture their interest in a series like The Mysteries of London, then you could carry that reader for years after the first edition sort of surfaces. Now, the fact that these things are, you know, now that they're collected and kind of rebound in modern reprints, they're 4,000 pages long and stuff like that should tell you something about the quality of the lit. These are not carefully crafted. There's no like governing aesthetic structure to these. They're incredibly episodic. Characters randomly disappear. Plot lines get lost. But I think the important thing is that they appeal to a reader who might be a reluctant reader at the very beginning and then keep them reading for years afterward. And I love that sense of it because I see very clearly, at least in the history of children's literature, how these types of things gave rise to the comic book industry of the 30s and 40s and also maybe even rise to some of our serialized novels like the Magic Treehouse books Mm -hmm. and these types of things. This really is a heritage that has developed across a great wide range of things into more modern contexts as well. You know, I think what would be called the very first superhero type figures do appear in these Penny Dreadfuls. One of um, the most popular was this character named Spring-Heeled Jack. That's my favorite. (laughs) Right? So Spring-Heeled Jack was, he was kind of like this urban legend kind of folkloric character. And he started off as like this legend before he started to be written about in these Penny Dreadfuls. And people in London in the 1830s would have sightings of this this creepy man who with, with you know larger than life qualities. Sometimes he was 10 feet tall and he had hooks for hands. And most importantly, he could leap over things in a single bound, right? He It, it was like he had springs in his heels. Um, and so people would have these sightings. He would try to rob them or he would appear on a highway in the middle of the night, right? And then gradually this gets incorporated into these Penny Dreadfuls. And so what you get are these stories about this quasi-criminal figure who can do superhuman type things. It very much looks like a Batman series or, or a kind of DC comic prototype in the 19th century. Which I think is just fabulous. And I, I love to see those connections. These 
obviously aren't the best literature <laughs> and they're very, they're very, very dreadful yes. <laughs> along those lines. So why do you think it's important that we remember them today or engage with them e- either from a critical perspective or just for a fun reading perspective? You know, many of these stories, because they lasted so long, have seeped into popular culture. I sometimes teach part of a penny dreadful called The String of Pearls, which nobody recognizes until I say, well, the main character in The String of Pearls is a man named Sweeney Todd, right? And so many of the classic characters that we know just from popular culture, just from being alive, actually came out of these penny dreadfuls. There's a history there um, that you can find when you go back to them. So how might we get access to these Penny Dreadfuls? I know I get access to them through archives and libraries and that type of things. But but how might people experience some of these? So fan collectors have digitized more and more of these and put them online. One of the best online places to find them is archive.org, which archives a lot of really nice scans of 19th century texts. And remember, these are really, 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 really long. And so you don't need to you know, look up or, or try to find every issue of these. But if you go online and start uh, searching around, you can just Google Penny Dreadful and you will find so many of these. They are they are much re- more readily available in the age of the internet, which I just love. And they're fun things just to look at and to see the history of children's literature. And some of the less dreadful ones I, I like to to read with children and those ones that connect to our cultural heritage too I just think are a great way to connect with this fun form that um, gave rise to so many new things so as we close up our conversation today Jamie tell us why you love penny dreadfuls what what is it about this this form that just attracts you as a reader you know as a literary critic I spend a lot of my time reading very serious literature canonized literature that we all respect and love. And sometimes it's thoroughly enjoyable to pick up a text that's badly written and melodramatic and gory and just fun. It's a nice change from a lot of the academic study that I do with other 19th century books. I would agree there. Sometimes it's just fun to read something fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jamie. You're welcome. Jamie Horrocks is an English professor here at BYU, and it's been such a pleasure to talk with her today. Now we're going to hear from David John Butler, an author who has plenty of tips for aspiring writers. Let's take a listen. Here's the first one. Never call yourself an aspiring writer. The reason is this. When you start writing stories or books or poems, whatever, What you are really trying to get is the attention and time of a reader. It's not money. Money is a byproduct, and it may not happen. If they get your book from a library, there may be no money involved. What you are bidding for is a reader's time, and that's really the most precious thing they have. And and you're bidding against the Avengers and Star Wars. uh, and, And by the way, you know, publishing revolution has made it really easy to get published and that's wonderful it also means nothing goes out of print ever which is wonderful for a reader and it's hard for an author because you are competing against every author who ever wrote a book and every day you're competing against more so don't ever give anybody a reason to ignore you because they're looking for it they don't they don't mean to be looking for it but when you say i'm an aspiring writer that's 
that's equivalent to saying I am not a writer. So one, never say that. Say I'm a writer, and, then, and someone can ask, "Oh, what do you write?" I'm working on my blah blah blah. I I write horror, right? I whatever, uh, and they'll figure out whether you've got a novel finished yet or or not in time. Don't 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 trip yourself up. Uh, there's a lot of advice for writers out there. Uh, the, uh, let, let me let me say this in an effort to say something that you haven't heard from every writer guest because you you hear some of the same stuff I bet like you got to write every day you got to be a writer okay uh, yeah so um, look writing has at least three parts uh, one is craft and most of what you read the advice for writers most of what you read is craft how do I go um, structure an outline uh, how do I know the difference between how do I know whether the story I have in mind is for a young adult or middle reader, right? These are craft questions. This is the easiest kind of question to find an answer to. It's the one most writers are able to talk to. The second thing, the second part of writing, uh, the one that almost no writers want to do, and all writers are really hoping that their publisher will do it for them, and it's almost certainly not going to happen, is selling you have to sell your work, and there, there's a, there's a sort of a there's a skill side of that. There's learning how to succinctly describe your story in a way that makes people go, "Oh, I I, yes, I will pay twelve dollars for that." And fundamentally, writing a synopsis, elevator pitching, uh, writing a query letter, uh, those are all the same. It's a different word count. It's all it's all the same skill. So, but it's also a, will, a willingness to tell people about your book to take a copy of your book down to the pizzeria you regularly go to and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but I write books. Here's a copy for you guys, right? It's worth learning a little bit, at least a little bit about how business works. It's worth learning a little bit about how publishers work, how bookstores work, how they don't work, why they might or might not carry your book, how you can help them succeed in a way that also helps you get your book in front of more people. Because, look, success as a writer requires luck, it's a kind of luck that to have to have it to get that luck you have to be out there working, but you're going to have to get it now. Now maybe you get a little bit of like Dave Butler luck and you get picked up, right? Or maybe you get really big luck, like uh, Robert Jordan's dies and his widow picks you to to finish his series and you go from being a kind of low midlist rising fantasy guy to the big guy, right? right. Brandon Sanderson kind of luck, or 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 whatever, right? You have you have to you have to get luck. But you have to be out there persisting, uh, looking for ways to get your stories to market. So, so spend some time thinking about the business, thinking about business generally, the business of writing. How, how, do, I, how do I put myself in a place where that luck can happen? And by the way, uh, this is hard and painful and nobody likes it. Uh, and, and also, by the way, the market is constantly changing. That's the way markets work. So, sorry. The third thing is that writing is kind of a shamanic activity where you uh, you leave your body and enter the world of spirits to go capture pieces you can assemble in a message that will bring healing to your tribe. And I think it is very, very easy to not think about that piece. So I would say if you're going to write, whatever it is that gives you spiritual and psychological depth, whatever the practices or the, the places or the literature or the singing that you need to do uh, to be in contact with meaning, to find things that are, that are deep and 
intrinsically human and eternal, don't neglect them. Because if you do, the risk is that your writing becomes a cardboard parody of itself that may be slick, it might be shaped the right way, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't mean anything. It's just three acts with a climax, and uh, it's all sound and fury. Um, But I think it's very important. So that's my advice. For a lot of different reasons, people have always had a fascination with the paranormal. Vampires, ghosts, werewolves, zombies have all become a staple of our popular culture for generations, but they're especially popular around this time of year. Today, I have author Jessica Day George with me in the studio to discuss her vampire novel, Silver in the Blood. It's great to have you here today, Jessica. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about your new book, Silver in the Blood. So tell me, what inspired this book? A really bad movie. Ooh, very cool. Like, you know, a lot of stories, a lot of my books, like, oh, I was taking a shower, I was washing my hair, and suddenly I thought, hmm, Magic Castle, you know. But, like, Silver in the Blood, I was watching a really bad movie (laughs) (laughs) that was based on a really great book. And the book is called Blood and Chocolate by Annette Curtis-Klaus. I absolutely love that book. Great it book. Is, it is a werewolf. It's a modern werewolf story. Predates predates Twilight. So they made a movie of it, and I was like so jazzed, like yeah, I love it. It's like my yeah. comfort read. Oh, I'm not feeling well. I'll just relax with a blood and yeah. chocolate, you yeah. know. And um, I waited for the movie to come out, and I don't know if it went direct to DVD or was only in the theaters a day, but <laughs> probably. <laughs> Suddenly, I realized it was just out, and I, I got the DVD and was so excited, and there are adorable people in it, and I was like, yay, and I start watching this movie, and I'm like, what is this? This is not my book. <laughs> this is not. And um, the, the book is set in Virginia, and the movie is set in Romania. Okay. And <laughs> instead of running a bed and breakfast, they uh, have an absinthe factory. They brew absinthe. Okay. And there's no reason why. Yeah. There is, like, no reason for this change. Absolutely none. And so I'm watching this movie waiting for there to be a reason why it's Romania. Yeah. Because the setting is gorgeous. And they get, she, she goes running every morning to kind of escape her problems, you know, puts her headphones on and goes running. And she's running past, like, palaces. And she's running past these beautiful grand old hotels, you know, 19th century hotels. Yeah. And the cameraman was in love with it. And he's, like, lovingly close-ups of the facade of this hotel and I'm like yes and she doesn't go in like nothing happens <laughs> like they're just in Romania and I'm all if I was going to set a story in Romania movie book whatever there would be a reason why yeah. they keep showing that hotel like what is that her family's hotel no you know they just and then the the long slow shots of the woods the Carpathian mountains with the moon overhead and I was like oh yes here we're no no reason it's just, just you know the cinematographer it. was in love with Romania and so that's was why. I frankly <laughs> by the end of the movie but the rest of it whatever you know the story had it could have been anywhere they yeah. could have done that and they could have done that in Virginia or Idaho or New yeah. York or whatever you wanted and so I was just I kept thinking about this like you know what and she's she's an American in the movie and in the book you know they're Americans but she's in Romania visiting family and she doesn't look around or say like wow it's really different here and I was like it must be so different there so I kept yeah. thinking like what would happen if you went from New York City to Romania 
you know, which they they were under communism for years. And so yeah. you could see it. You could, And I started looking up pictures of Romania to see what some of the things were that had been in the movie. And, you know, here's this gorgeous 19th century hotel, this grand palace looking hotel. And right next to it, there'll be like a cement block of apartments mm-hmm. built, you know, under the communist regime and stuff. And imagine going from anywhere, honestly, in America as a teenager to that yeah. You know, this is where we live now. This is where our family is from, you know, and you thought we were from Manhattan and they are actually from this. Yeah. And so I just kept thinking about it. I'm like, and imagine, you know, writing home, I started thinking about what if I did a book that was like entirely emails and texts between yeah. like two friends and the one has to go visit mom's family in Romania and she's emailing back like, you're not going to believe this. You know, we live in this absolute palace, but it's, you know, falling apart or something like that. And so she would have been going from fabulous, you know, rich. New York to fabulous ritzy Romania. Romania. But at the same time, that is when the book Dracula came out. That is when the stories of vampires, which originated in the Carpathian Mountains, started to become a popular thing as well. So you do have people that herd goats and are illiterate. And you do have like the gypsies on the side of the road that you can buy spells from and things like that for a few pennies. And you do have vampires and werewolves and witches supposedly living in the mountains at the same time you have you know parisian nobility vacationing right there next to all this happening and i was like this is fantastic it fits the setting alone is just worth (laughs) it it. so uh so you know instead of emails i switched over and it's letters and diary entries between these cousins and i decided that they both needed to be there both needed to go and and see the family and discover this dark secret that their family has and you know here they are these girls that have been dressed by maids every day you know and it's like corset pantaloons corset cover gown you know bustle all the works and then told like no you'll never leave from now on you're going to dress in the family's traditional clothing because we have this horrible secret and you'll never recover and i was like this is getting good my brain is a happy place (laughs) i love that well one of the things i love about the book is is the interplay between those two cousins i i think it's a very interesting connection because you've never had that in any of your books where there's really two main characters and they're playing off of each other and I I hope not to spoil it but there's a part in the book where they kind of switch roles where one is expected to be the strong dynamic one yeah Yeah. one's always been the dominant Dacia is her name and is like this society girl the debutante of the season back in New York she has a guy who has just requested his grandmother's antique engagement ring you know for her and and all this stuff. And she's always been the one that leads the way at parties and things yeah, like that. The she's, confidence. She's recently yeah. been associated in a scandal where she may or may not have faked an elopement <laughs> because she's that kind of girl. Yeah. And uh, meanwhile, her cousin is just like along for the ride because, yeah. you know, they're best friends. But they do. They play off of each other because they are so different. Yeah. You know, they've always been together. Their mothers are sisters and very close. So they've always sort of been thrown in together. Lou very shy, very retiring, very sensitive, and, like, always thinking, like, everyone's looking at me, and I'm not, like, up to snuff. Even though Daisha addressed me, I still don't look right. I shouldn't be here. And the family secret is so horrifying to Daisha, who's used to her world being the way she likes it. (laughs) And Lou is the one that's more adaptable because she's adapted all her life because she finally feels like, oh, no matter what they do to me, they can't take this away. 
I'm more powerful than you now. Yeah. And so she just, she loves it. Yeah. And I think <laughs> I had so much fun writing that. I know. Well, I can tell. I can tell from the book because I I think it's interesting that that dynamic and how they play together and then they switch roles and then they both kind of, in the end, they come yeah. together and, and are a powerful duo. But the other thing I love about the book is you have, you have some very lovely love interests in the book. And there's a variety of them in a, a variety, variety of, of situations. Yes. Which, which is, so anybody can find the right love interest. And that that really is a great thing. And also just some great villains yes. in, in the book, which I think is great too. Some Sometimes you don't really expect them to be the villain, but then they and may turn out to be the villain. I always think that's more shocking too in a villain yeah. is it's like somebody, you know, that you trust or someone yeah. very handsome that everyone loves, you know, yeah. this bon vivant, you know, man about town and all the girls are falling at his feet. And then you're like, whoa, no, he's no, like he's full not. on evil. <laughs> he's, like, he's more, you know, or, yeah. and I always yeah. think that like a betrayal, like by a family member too yeah. is, so there's a, there's a lot going on. There's a lot against these yeah. girls and stuff. And it's coming from places that they would not expect. Yeah. And that I think is all the more shocking because yeah, sure. You're expecting Definitely. that catty girl that's always making fun of your dresses to like turn on you, but yeah. you're not expecting, you know, a relative yeah. <laughs> or something yeah. like that. So and I think, I think that makes it really interesting and, and it just makes you question some of it, you know, or is this really going to turn out that way? Yeah. Are, did she really did say she that? Really or, say that? She just, or, yeah. or maybe it's just sort of kind of pretend or, yeah. you know, and you really they're have just to... faking it for a minute. Yeah. Oh, no, wait, they're not. No, they're not. <laughs> Whoops, we thought that way. And, and it really just draws you in to that kind of intrigue in that world. And, and I think it makes the setting, the Romanian setting, all that more vivid because of that intrigue and that you're not quite sure what's going to happen and who's going to be good and who's going to be bad. Good. And that, yeah, I mean, it does. It brings that kind of that kind of sense of vividness to to everything in the book so it's it's a great book so if you haven't read it yet you should pick it up (laughs) silver in the blood it's it's a marvelous adventure full of all kinds of things and we will end on the note it's for boys too it's for boys too there's there's girls many characters oh there's fighting there's (laughs) There's, all i mean there's there's fighting there's death there's mayhem there's war there's there's, magic there's it's fabulous shapeshifters there's a guy running around with a copy of dracula screaming (laughs) there's all kinds of there's kinds of all great thing so boys and girls will love it (laughs) it's a good thing thanks so much jessica thank you jessica day george is an author of fantastical and paranormal novels and it's been wonderful to talk with her today now before i leave you i'm going to step around the librarian's table to talk with librarians from around utah about children books and life at the library today we'll continue our spooky theme as we talk with karen and megan about horror stories Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I am excited to chat with you today about a topic that is not my favorite topic, but is one of, you know, you guys have different perspectives on it. So I'm Mm -hmm. excited. Um, When we talk about genres, my least favorite genre is like horror and suspense. But But it's my favorite. It's your favorite. It's totally your favorite. And Megan, you read it too. I like it just fine. You like it just fine. So we've kind of got the less, the medium, and the more, right, along these lines of 
of this particular genre. So, Karen, why don't we start with you? What, why is this a, a genre that you love? Why is this one that you are attracted to? You know, I think I sort of started drifting that direction when I first read A Mystery, and I started with Wilkie Collins. Ah, yeah. The Lady in White. Yes. And yes. the element of the paranormal to me adds kind of a magical element, like people who love Harry Potter love Harry Potter. But to me, each horror story or thriller story usually has to follow the guidelines invented by the author. And so to me, it's solving a paranormal mystery that this author has established the boundaries for. And so it intrigues my mind. It gets me started thinking, okay, where are they headed and why? What what question that is unanswerable are they trying to answer? That, that's so intriguing to me because that's why I love fantasy is that kind of context of the unanswerable or pushing the imagination. So I never really thought about horror suspense in that way. So you kind of blew my mind there, Karen. <laughs> totally blew my mind. That's what I try to do, yeah, I know. Yeah, you, to- you totally did that. I love it. But I mean, how does that make you think about it, Megan, as, as you're thinking about this genre? What, how does that contextualize for you and why you like it. Right. So that gives me a little inkling of why I like it because I do, I read the horror stories because I want to find out, you know, who the demon is or what's happening or why everything creepy is going on. Um, But at the same time, because you like it, because it's a little bit, you know, there's a formula that um, these authors follow. That's one reason why I don't necessarily love it as much as other books, because I find that they kind of follow the same patterns. And so I can get bored with them relatively easily. But I do like them once in a while, because once I, you know, find out the beginnings of a mystery, I have to obviously keep reading to find out what happens. And a lot of times I'm surprised by how intriguing those mysteries are. Um, So that's why I like it, but maybe not as much as Karen. Yeah, and I like that sense of the formula because I I do think sometimes, for me, horror particularly can get a little formulaic. And it can get a little formulaic where, you know, I start second-guessing the characters, right, where I'm just like... If only you had thought logically about the situation, right? <laughs> right? Or if only you had, if only you had thought that through, or if only you had acted in an appropriate manner, you know, and that see, any normal person would have. Yeah. I'm that way with Wuthering Heights, and it's <laughs> there a you classic. Go. Yeah. I'm like, I want to walk into Heathcliff, and what is boom, her boom. name? I do. <laughs> yeah. I just kind of yeah. want to go to both of them. If you would just grow up and take some responsibility, <laughs> none of you would have these issues. But you know, it all started really for me with the vampire. Mm. mythology and Frankenstein. And if you go back to what the people who wrote these books were talking about, it was um, mostly scientific mysteries that they were taking one step beyond to explain what happens between life and death. And I think I have a tendency to approach these with um, kind of a scientific eye of are they being rational about these? So I don't Mm. particularly enjoy books that get too far into the blood or the gore or who follow uncreatively a formula to the end. But right now I'm reading When Life Gives You Demons. And it reminds me so much of Buffy the Vampire Slayer with just the creative badinage, the clever wording, et cetera, so on and so forth. And of course, I'm to the point in the book where we have just discovered where her mother really is. Ah! (laughs) So we have, you know, to this point, the book has been building what would it take to solve what is going on and what is going wrong in this town. And we discover 
can she do it at this point? And I think the author has very cleverly built this story so carefully so that the question really is, does this young woman have the strength to do what she actually needs to do? And I'm intrigued. I can't wait to finish the story. You know, Karen, you're just blowing my mind here because I had never really thought of that either because I think that that's one of the things that I like about adventure is that it's kind of pushing that sense of the human capacity. And I think when you describe these books, you're you're having that sense too of of how do we how do we push the limits of the human capacity to to live and interact with the world in very unique ways. And I like that kind of stuff where we you know we're pushing our boundaries, where we're we're making us more than we think we could be as human beings. And that seems to be kind of that sense of horror for you too, right? Is that it's, it's pushing those limits of human capacity. Is is that, am I interpreting that right? I think so. I think so. And one of my fondest first scary stories was The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Mm -hmm. And I loved the Disney version of it. And when I can find a book or a story that doesn't necessarily delve into uh, total terror, but it gives you that little bit of a shiver of the unknown. Mm-hmm. It delights me. I love mm. that. That's such a good way to look at it. Okay, Megan, do you have a book that's coming to mind that that you might want to suggest in, in this area that you've enjoyed? Um, I recently read This Savage Song by Victoria Schwab. Oh, yes. So good, her, good example. This book was a little bit more I mean, a little bit more on the fantasy side, but not quite all the way. It was mostly just supernatural and some horror and suspense with monsters basically ravaging this city in a post-apocalyptic world. And that one was really fun for me because it was very scary and you kind of had to figure out, you know, who the monsters were, what their end game was. And um, it was a lot of fun, um, a little bit darker than what I normally read and more suspenseful, but it was yeah. it was good. I think it was a lot about that that moment where you ask if the protagonist can actually accomplish this or if they're just going to, you know, succumb to the monsters in their world. So that was a good point for me as well. That's cool. I love it. You know, I really love picture books for the same reason, just to give children along the same lines as fantasy that the world isn't just the things we see. Mm-hmm. Um Go out and see what there is available. We'll have some posted on uh, BYUCBMR.com. And I happen to know that I do the front page, so I know there will be some on there. There will some be great ones up there for you. (laughs) Well, you know, when you mentioned picture books, one of the ones that I think of um, just off the top of my head is The Dark by Lemony Snicket, which is just a fun, it's a very kind of scary, eerie book about this young man who's afraid of the dark. But the dark takes on its a personality, right? The dark right. is a thing, right? And it and those kinds of senses where we're kind of pushing those boundaries, I think it's a a great way to extend our human capacities yes, in those ways. Or the witch's broom. That's a great one too. That's a great that one. one. That's a that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank, Thank you. you. Many thanks to Karen and Megan for joining us around the librarian's table. It's been a wonderfully spooky show today. First, we talked with Matt Kirby about his book, A Taste for Monsters. Then we had Professor Jamie Horrocks with us and talked about the twisted penny dreadfuls of the Victorian era. After that, we talked with Jessica Day George about her book, Silver in the Blood. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app, as well as on most podcast apps or websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. 
This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Tanner Rawl. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting for us next week. Happy Halloween, and thank you for exploring with us.